welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm Sarah Condon, your host. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-host, R.J. Heyman and David Zoll. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. to we are here today to record the mocking cast we're getting, this is probably our last full-length episode before we take a little break for July though I know we've got plans to do some shorter episodes but um, I, I think we've got a lot to discuss and let's begin by just hearing how you're doing I mean I'm amazing what time is it it's uh one <laughs> thirty-five in the afternoon I'm still in my pajamas so I'm I'm killing it you know what I mean just killing it it's my day off so, Living the dream, crushing it. Yeah, spent like two hours on Ancestry.com. I mean, I'm just having the summer of my life. So. And your daughter is finally swimming, from what I can oh tell. Oh my God, praise yes, God. Yes, on Facebook, praise God. It's she awesome. didn't even have to go to Uncle RJ's swim camp, you know what I mean? Like she... Where we throw which, in the deep end and see if she's Which would have been free. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we had to pay a lot of money, actually. Yeah, she is swimming, which does feel like... It, it is, I mean, it is a miracle. Watching your kid learn how to swim, the first time they read, like when they tie their shoes. Like, it's those moments you're just like, oh, like, this is amazing. Like, but you've, you you've also written sort of extensively about the frustration or at least the the drawn out process, shall we say, of her, her, her psychology around swimming has not been. Well, look, we can cut this and they're not a sponsor. So I feel like I can speak freely, but these swim schools, you guys, have you sent your kids to a swim school? It is such a racket. They stretch it out. They teach your kids to swim and it takes 26 years. Like you go in and every time they're like, like for a year, every time I take Annie and they're like, She's getting used to the water. And I'm like, she's been having baths since she was three days old. Why are we explaining she's to her made what of water, water is? She's 90% water. Oh, my water. God. I was like, it was like the Helen Keller, like, movie thing where she puts her hand under the like, only every swim lesson. Anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, Jamie took our oldest son to one swim lesson and never went back. That was it. She was like, this is a waste of time. Yeah, and money. Well, speaking as someone who uh, taught swim lessons for a couple of uh, summers, I will say that part of it is what you're doing is babysitting. And like, and especially if the parent is anywhere in sight, you just like, there's no freedom to do anything. Right. So it's, um, but RJ, what, what's Dave, uh, Dave, no, no mercy for swim class instructors. That's not what this podcast is about. <laughs> yes. Okay. They no, deserve our extend. compassion, our understanding. <laughs> they certainly don't deserve your criticism, Rutger. Um, <laughs> but how are you doing, buddy? What's how what's what's life in the Hayman Great. household? Great. I had a Whopper with cheese for lunch, so I'm going to fall asleep halfway through this podcast, awesome, but it was well day. worth it. Ooh, so good. The $5 like value size deal. Oh, man. Every Freedom. so often I got to love myself, get me a Whopper and cheese. Freedom. But I, I need to be careful not to be around a staircase in Sarah Condon when I have my Whopper because she's inclined to just, you know, push That's me down. That's my theory. I've said that before with really elderly people that all their families worried about how to keep them safe. I'm like, give them a cheeseburger and a long flight of stairs. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> That's pastoral Stop care trying to keep 95-year-old women safe. Yeah, oh exactly. Oh, my gosh. Dave, how are you? Yeah, how are you, Dave? Thank you. World like, traveler, jet you, setter, all these famous celebrity. people you're interacting with. Like, what? Tell us, Dave. Like, oh, well, what do so, they eat? Uh, the, 
<laughs> I was just out doing the last uh, bunch of dates for the tour of the for about, for about Saculosity. It was super fun. Got to be in Florida and met a ton of people, especially a lot of podcast listeners in Jacksonville and in uh, Orlando. And um, just it was so, it's just so encouraging to actually, you know, I feel this less and less, but for a long time when you record podcasts, it feels like you're just putting something out into the ether and maybe someone's listening and you see these numbers, Shouting but you never have any. Yeah. And so you, but you run into people and they say, oh my goodness, this is a, sort of our tether to, uh, you know, our faith and to humor and reality. And then I got to go out to California and I hung out with my wonderful friends at this uh, Cross of Christ Church in Costa Mesa. And then I, yes, I did. I got to hang out with Tony Hale, the the incredible uh, actor who is, you know, he's not only voicing Forky in the new Toy Story, but he's, uh, you know, he's, he's won a bunch of Emmys for his work in Veep, which is just finished. And he was Buster Bluth on Arrested Development. I'm going to Army, mother. <laughs> he's an all-around fantastic individual, and I'm part of the Tony Hale fan club. But yes. also, it's the he's longest amazing. time I got to amazing. spend with him, and, and it's just uh, really special. So, yeah, really grateful for all the people that sort of welcomed me out there. And, and, and I mean, you also had an interview go up with Maria Shriver. Mm. You had an oh, interview with Maria Shriver? Oh, yes. that. Oh, that. Yes. Well, no, it was with her. Uh, her she's got a, something called the Sunday Paper, which it's is on one. her website. It's like a deal. That's crazy. Yeah. Yes, it's a deal. I mean, I, I don't know. I think we have a publicist that's doing their job, and Maria Shriver is, uh, it, it was funny. She sent out this long email, and it's like something about Jennifer Garner and uh, her work sort of at the border, and mm-hmm. then it's Simon Sinek, you know, who's this great guru, and then it's David Zoll mm-hmm. talking about sort of secular and how to One of these things of is not like the other. I know. Just, I'm a fraud. <laughs> Imposter syndrome. Well, see, but arrival. In the fallacy. last year, Sarah's got a selfie with Arnold. Could, it's all I could think of when you got Dave a selfie said with Arnold, that he was going to communicate. And Dave with... has got an interview with Maria Shriver. So we got we have the Kennedy Schwarzenegger Shrivers covered. Done. Well, well, not I quite. Because was... the thing that I was most excited about yeah. when I realized what was going on was I was like, well, didn't Chris Pratt just marry her daughter? And wouldn't mm-hmm. that be cool if Andy Dwyer uh, reads um, Star Lord re, uh, reads this book? That would be. Especially after his MTV like little speech about hashtag being ar- loved by God, you but, know, which was unreal. Dave, why don't we talk about our first piece? Let's talk about our first piece. <laughs> Thanks for talking about me. Um, we're talking about the devil this week, and Sarah, this is partly prompted by something that you wrote, and then you wrote this wonderful thing on Mockingbird about stop blaming the devil, like you can you can sin all on your own, and uh, really, I mean, it it got a lot of sort of uh, discussion going and. I know it's something that, like, over the years, it's been it's tough uh, in our context to talk about the demonic and the devil and the satanic. Um, but here we have Jessica Hooten Wilson in Christianity Today wrote an article called "The Devil Lives in the Mirror." This is what she said. She said the demonic has been a literary trope for centuries. So when I began writing a book about Dostoevsky and Flannery O'Connor, I was not discovering something new by pointing to the devils in their work. No one who reads their stories will miss the demonic overlays. Rather, I began learning the identity or whereabouts of the demonic. Unlike Frank Peretti, whose demons lurk in shadows and wage war from the outside of us, Dostoevsky and O'Connor depict the devil within us. O'Connor defines the novelist's job as reflecting, quote, our broken condition and through it the face of the devil we are possessed by, end of quote. If you read her stories, you will be shown a mirror that reflects a scandalous image, yourself as possessed. 
I found similar truths while reading the brothers Karamazov. The characters who succumbed to pride and thus to the influence of the demonic lived according to false narratives about their identity. One calls himself a buffoon. Another poses as an intellectual. Yet another is torn between being a romantic hero or a sensualist. The holy figure in the novel, Father Zosima, cautions these characters, saying, Above all, do not lie to yourself. A man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to a point where he does not discern any truth. Now as ever, Jessica Hooten Wilson writes, the devil's lies hide as truth in common mottos that sound appealing, inspiring, and desirable. We want to be in charge of ourselves and control of our future and able to make ourselves better. That sounds nice and good, but when you do you, as the saying goes, you become the supreme self. And if pushed too far, writes Ross Duthat in Bad Religion, the quest for supreme self can blur into the most ancient human temptation, the whisper in Eden that ye shall be as gods. So the reason I was like, we'll get there is because one of my other favorite uh, Chris uh, Pratt, right? Yes, um, yes. yes. Moments is when the cast of Parks and Rec is accepting, I think, I guess it's a... Um, what dumb television you get, what a word. Emmy. Emmy. They're accepting an Emmy. I think that's what it is. And so the whole cast is up there. And he, you know, he's he's a very faithful, fervent Christian, which is like amazing. Um, but there's this moment where Aubrey Plaza, who is the woman who plays his wife, April, mm-hmm. is also on stage, and she is not. And she takes the award and comes to the microphone and he he knows what she's about to do. You can hear him in the background be like, no, don't do it, Aubrey, don't do it. And he's like trying to pull her away from the microphone and she holds up the award. She's like, I'd just like to thank the devil. <laughs> he's like freaking out behind her. So like so I did good. I did think of that a little bit. Depending on what day I'm having, I find that varying degrees of funny. But it's it's like it's No, a, they it's have a, they have such chemistry on that show too. They do, but I mean there was uh, there's obvious like um oppositional stuff happening, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um I loved what uh what you just read, Dave. The part that really resonated with me is what we hear in culture right now, which is this like, you know, you do you kind of stuff. And I'm always like, you never want me to do me. Like, such a bad <laughs> like, you I'm, know not what you ask. I would not have any friends. I, my marriage would be over. You know what I mean? Like CPS would get called. Like you like don't encourage. Like, I think that's such a, in some ways, such a bad thing to encourage. Um, so you doing you is a really bad idea. Um, not something I think that we should encourage other people to do. But also the, the thing about the de- de- demonic stuff that I find interesting is that we're often obsessed with, when we think demonic, we think exorcism. Like that's really where people's brains go. They go to like worst case scenario, which I think is always what we do when we don't want to deal with it in our own lives and our own selves, right? Like it's like we'd rather just like access the horror movie version than like deal with the fact that like we enact evil, you know, on a pretty regular basis. Um, So, and the piece I wrote, I wrote just because I I get really tired of Christian communities and people doing this thing where like, if they don't get their way, 
they often will be like, well, the devil's just after us. You know what I mean? Or if there are people that are sort of the other side of the issue, then they'll say, well, you know, those people, you know, it's like, they're just the devil. And I mean, I understand the impulse. Like I'm married to a priest who runs a church and, you know, there are moments that we for sure, like, will be like, what is happening right now? But I think for me, the delineation, and it's interesting, some stuff happened in the comment section around this, but the delineation is like, you need to ask yourself before you blame the devil, like, am I the asshole in the room? You know what I mean? And I think that often we just skip that question because usually we are. <laughs> when in doubt. Yeah, when in doubt, you're the <laughs> asshole. <laughs> um, I, I love these articles. I love that we're talking about the devil um, because I do think it's true. I mean, obviously, there's a whole subset of American evangelicalism, fundamentalism, Pentecostalism, whatever, that's obsessed with the demonic and the devil. But for most people, and especially kind of most mainliners, you just really don't want to talk about it, about it even being a thing. And I do think that, you know, uh, I think it was Baudelaire who first said, uh, you know, the the greatest trick of the devil is is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And, right. and that he, we in the Western world are very good at doing that, but I think he does exist. And, and if there's one thing Jesus did, it's drive out demons. Like he engaged with the spiritual realm a lot. Um, it made me think about what Luther said about, um, us being double, like beasts with two riders, that we as humans are beasts who are always alternately being ridden by God or the devil. Mm. And the reason I like that is because uh, it reminds us that we are not the subjects in the story. We are the object. We are not uh, the strong man, as Jesus talks about. We are subject to the strong man. And the whole temptation of the devil is that you are the subject in the story. You are the arbiter of your own reality. You can be like God. You are in charge. And it's like, no, 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 no. You are the act. You're not the actor. You're the acted upon. Mm -hmm. You are not the subject. You are the object. And your only hope is that uh, the Holy Spirit will come in and break the, the, the bonds of the strong man that is enslaving you and set you free. You know, that's, that is our only hope. And so I love that. Um, it's also occurred to me in the past as I've thought about the devil and the, that the, you know, we always tie up the devil with immorality, but if Christianity is justification by faith, then it's not the devil's job to create immorality. It's the devil's job to destroy faith. And those are two very different things. And let's face it, um, immorality can actually be very helpful for faith and supposed morality can destroy faith. Mm. And I think one of the devil's jobs is to convince us that we're bigger and better and stronger and holier than we are and that we need God less, right? And so the work of the devil can oftentimes look like moralism, legalism, Pharisaism, and not um, honesty, brokenness, transparency, you know, which I think is where faith um, flourishes. And then the last thought I had, actually, this just occurred to me this past Sunday because the lectionary reading is that famous story where um, Jesus encounters the garrison demoniac, you know, the guy who's like legion, mm -hmm. um, has all those demons, and Jesus sends them into that uh, herd of pigs to drown themselves, which is, I think, definitive proof that Jesus probably would not have been an animal rights activist. But uh, that's, that's, a different, uh, that's a different story. What I thought was striking about that story, I'd never 
realized before was that the demons beg Jesus not to send them back into the abyss. Yes. And he grants their request. Yes. Like he has compassion on the demons. Isn't he has that mercy crazy? on the demons. Yes. And I was like, what hmm. is going I've never, I've on I've never here? noticed that. I noticed that it for the first crazy. time like a few weeks. Yes. I'm so glad. He like, yes. He like, yes, 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 yes. He, they begged him, do yes. not send us into the abyss. So there was a, fl- a, sw- a herd of swine and... And they said, please let us go into the pigs. And he allowed, he, pre- and he permitted them to go into the swan. It was merciful to the demons. And I was like, what is happening? So I got to think more about that. Mm. But I found that to be, um, those are my current thoughts on the devil. I, that's, it's so interesting to hear from you guys where you're at with this. I remember a couple of uh, years ago, actually, on this podcast, we had an interview with Richard Beck, who a theologian who is writ- wrote a book called Reviving Old Scratch, which was about, right, sort of, a, he was sort of a... Um, self-described progressive Christian trying to talk about the devil and how um, it, it's a classic thing where, again, um, usually you think of the devil, you think of very conservative Christians talking about personal attacks and or evil, personal, you know, bad people doing, you know, reading too much Harry Potter or something. But then... Disney um, movies. Yeah. But then you... Uh, uh, then he was like saying, well, in his context, in sort of a blue state context, you're constantly talking about systemic injustice and these systems that are sort of preying upon people. And in fact, it the, the he was trying to reclaim the demonic as the diabolical language for that. And it's yet another example where sort of liberals will talk collectivism and uh, conservatives right. will talk individualism. And I would say the Christian can just say that both is yes. probably true because uh, collectives are made up of individuals and uh you know, I think when I was younger, I would get really embarrassed about any of the demon talk or uh, when we'd have Bible study, we'd sort of, I'd sort of choose passages that didn't involve demons. So I wouldn't have to feel that one because it seemed so implausible. But as you get older and you deal with people who are so possessed by so many things that do not have their best interests at heart, call it mental illness, call it addiction, call it, uh, you know, just com- just regular conflictedness. It's not a tough sell, at least for me personally and in the people that I speak with, uh, this uh kind of spiritual realm of life where there is evil that where there is some maybe you can't you have too many of like you know the the flanders the the with the horns and the tail uh image in your head or donald duck on the shoulder or some things that to take that seriously but it's not hard to look around at the world what's harder to look at discern from the world is the existence of a loving god uh than the existence of uh sort of malevolent forces. But I was also struck by, we've now talked about it a few times, but Chris Arnade's book, Dignity, and Sarah, remember the, the, the only places on the streets that understand? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I posted another quote from it the other day when he talks about going to the South Bronx from being sort of on Wall Street, a very poor neighborhood. He said, everyone I met in the South Bronx who was living homeless or battling an addiction held deep faith. Mixed with faith in God is a strong belief in the reality of evil. Crossing the bridge into Hunts Point, Takesha looks out the window of my van. She says, this place is so bad and evil. It's like so simple to walk across the bridge, but it's like you can't go across. You understand? This place is evil. It's possessed. It's evil. I've been here a long time. There are bad spirits here. I've seen good people. I've seen people that have family jobs and they come here and they get dug in and two weeks later they're living in a cardboard box. And he gives a number of other examples. And he says, when you're up against evil, whether the, the mysterious efforts of demons or the all too explainable effects of drugs, the front row, meaning Wall Street's uh, world of science education and smart arguments, doesn't do much for you. Uh, 
I found that to be that kind of speaks to uh, where where we are. It's not super comforting. I think no. I think there actually is something about knowing that God is sovereign and not that God causes these harmful things, but that like God will, I mean, it's very like of the Psalms, like that God will pull us out of the hard things, that God knows that the hard things are are in this world. And so I think I, I struggle a bit with, I think it's about where, where you find comfort and, you know, it's a fleeting thought I have where I'm like, oh, I feel like the devil's hounding us right now. You know what I mean? And honestly, a huge percentage of the time, I think that it's just me being um, the legion of my life uh, and, yeah. and and not the devil. I mean, it, we know we can have a whole long conversation about whether or not the devil is in us and all, you know, if it's us or the devil and all these things, we can do that. But, but for me, the, the comfort is not there. The comfort is in this sovereign God who sees us through these hard things. So... Totally. Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't know, we're, we're not here to, we don't have to figure out where one, yeah. one ends and the other begins. Yeah. I think it's... Uh, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Right? Yeah. Right? Like it can kind of be both ends. But I think still, Sarah, your point is well taken um, to take our own sins seriously and tell ourselves the truth about our what we are capable of on our own. Right. Uh, rather than trying to kind of pass the buck to someone else as if it has nothing to do with us. Well, right. if anything, what, what, like, what, what good. Brothers K is saying is that the devil is in the act of not telling the truth about your mm. own sort of yes. low anthropology. Yeah. But it's not to, to say that you are therefore indulging in kind of some sort of form of self-loathing. In fact, as we get to the next piece... Which is, and that's surely not the last word, I think, on, on any of these subjects, but is wonderful. No, that's, that's all we have to say about the <laughs> I mean, I could talk about the devil on. all day long. Okay, that's keep right. going. Uh, wonderful. I'd like to thank the devil for this award. <laughs> uh, okay, Heather Haverleski, our, who we enjoy so much, uh, she wrote, this is actually back in March, but I missed it, and it's an unbelievable article called, Is Marriage Obsolete? So we're from the devil into marriage, you draw the connection. She says, my younger daughter often proclaims that she will never get married no matter what. And why should she want to? As much as I prefer to believe that her father and I are setting a shining example of affectionate, radically open communication, the reality is that she's had a lifelong, all-access pass to the tedious diplomacy of marital negotiations, the low-key squabbling, the mutual suspensions of disbelief, the subtle undermining, the ever-increasing codependence. It's not surprising that all my daughter wants when she grows up is a tiny house, a subcompact car, and a mini Australian Shepherd. And honestly, there are days when the prospect of growing old next to a mini Aussie doesn't sound so bad. To be married is to have the words, this is all your fault, eternally poised on the tip of your tongue. Marriage can feel like a moral litmus test in this way. Your challenge is to maintain your composure as the staggering deficits of the highly ineffectual human by your side come into sharper and sharper focus. My daughter's lack of interest in marriage is not exactly an anomaly. 45% of all Americans 18 and older are now single, and more than half of Americans surveyed said that getting married wasn't an important part of becoming an adult. Whereas marriage was once seen as a joint effort to achieve the good life, these days marriage looks more like a joint attempt to live your best lives together and separately. So why do I love this tortuous state of affairs so much? And listen to this, guys. This, is, this got me. 
But there's something distinctly reassuring about breaking down, falling into disrepairs, disrepair, losing your charms, misplacing your keys, when you have an equally inept and irritating human tolerating it all, in spite of a million and one very good reasons to put on his walking boots and take his love to town. Marriage can't simply be about living your best lives in sync. Because some of the peak moments of a marriage are when you share in your anxieties, your fears, your longing, and even your horrors. That commitment, the one that can withstand and even revel in the darkest corridors of a life, grows and evolves and eventually transcends a contract or a ceremony the way an ocean overflows and subsumes a thimble of water. By unearthing our most discouraged moments together without turning away, by screeching at the moon side by side, admitting that this is all our fault, we don't just reaffirm our love, we reaffirm our shared and separate ability to face the unknown from this point forward. That's why sickness and death are key to marriage vows, because there is nothing more divine than being able to say out loud, today I am really, truly at my worst, knowing that it won't make your spouse run for the hills. My husband has seen my worst before. We both know that our worst is likely to get worse from here, and somehow that feels like grace. She's got away with words, that, that Heather Haverleski. What do you guys think? I'm going to say... So this Wednesday, uh, this coming Wednesday, is our 20th anniversary, what? which is amazing. And I, I really can honestly say I feel like our marriage has never been better than it is right now. And I'll also I'll say part of that is because um, we've been in pretty consistent therapy for the last two and a half years, which has been really, really good. But I think we it feels like we, and maybe just I, have had some breakthroughs recently, like within the last six months. Um, I think I remember right after our last kind of big fight, for some reason, I, I, I woke up the next day or maybe it was later that day. And I sort of said to myself, and this goes directly to what Heather said about, um, th what is it? You know, this is all your, everything is your fault. This is all your fault is constantly on the tip of your tongue. I sort of said, I don't, I, I'm never gonna, I'm never going to criticize my wife again. Um, and I, I'm probably not going to keep that promise, but I kind of, for whatever reason, by the totally by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, I kind of have for the last six months, and um, I think that's been helpful. <laughs> you know, when you don't, when it's probably helpful for her to feel like I'm not attacking her, and I don't, and I'm not constantly accusing everything of her of being at fault for everything. Um, and then I, I was doing a little vow renewal service. And I was thinking about the passages in the Bible that talk to marriage, and I was feeling a little bit dangerous. So I, you know, went and thought about Ephesians 5 again, and all Paul has to say about submission. And I was thinking about Esther Perel and what she says in her amazing podcast, oftentimes when, when her couples are in conflict and they can't agree about sort of what happened or why it happened, and they can't come to a shared version of, of the story that led to their particular place. And she'll say, basically, it, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't right. matter what happened. It doesn't matter what the truth is. What matters is that you can listen to each other and empathize with one another and, and put yourself in the other person's position and really believe and understand and feel how they feel and want, some, so want something different than that for them. And I realized... I, I think that's a little bit what submission is, that submission in marriage is the willingness to submit to your spouse's version of events and view of reality and emotions 
Um, and again, being willing to set aside if just for a moment your own grievances, hurts, point of view, as valid as they may be, and actually listen to your spouse and then in turn hopefully be listened to, um, that that is where kind of relationship happens, where love happens. And and the last thing I'll say, I just, I love what she says about um, being before another person at your absolute worst and being accepted anyway, because that's another thing I've thought a lot about as I've done, you know, dozens and dozens of weddings over the last few years, that I think marriage at the end of the day is two people standing naked in front of each other in every conceivable way, emotionally, physically, financially, spiritually, seeing each other for who they actually are, warts and all, and still loving each other and how horrifying that is, but also how healing that is and how um, it runs counter to our, you know, sense of safety to stand naked in front of another person that way. And yet, if we want to have intimacy with another person, that's kind of the only, the only hope we have. So those are the thoughts that were raised by this article. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I definitely think people shouldn't get married these days, and it makes sense as to why they do not to me. It makes full sense as to why they do not, because we live in a culture where people are told things like, you do you, and you have personal autonomy, and, um, you know, a certain amount of, let's just call it demonic affirmation. Um and <laughs> and that's a that's a pretty sure. that's a pretty normal way that we talk to each other and a normal way we encourage each other right now. And so all the things that a happy marriage requires, I mean, I think, um, go completely against that. So don't, definitely don't get married if you if you if you are at all serious about holding on to your autonomy, your freedom, your memory, the way you remember things, your choices. Your right to be right. Your right to be right. Your rights. I mean, you know, yeah. try being like, try try being a woman, married woman in 2018 who was like raised by first generation feminists. Like it's like, there's a whole narrative I have that like I was raised with, a lot of girls my age are raised with, which is great, right? We're all boss ladies now, but also we were raised with this like, you were always right. You have all the rights. You are right. You are right. And so that's always in the back of my head when I'm fighting with him, like, you know, well, I can just walk out. I can do whatever I want. And like that actually doesn't work. And so, cause it just means we fight a lot and I feel righteous indignation, which is just such an amazing feeling. So productive. Oh it, just, it feels so good. Oh, it's like, I'm so, it's I'm so like, right. Oh, it feels so good to be so right. It's like eating cake. <laughs> um, but, but it, it just, it just doesn't, the, it just actually doesn't lead to anything. I don't know. I mean, I think in my own marriage and I've, you know, we've done a little marriage therapy and I, we, I really kind of wanted to end marriage therapy pretty quickly. Cause I'm, I'm not as good a person as RJ. As soon as I got in there and realized I was the problem, I was like, we're done here. We're done. Here. Thank you for your services, ma'am. We're done. Where did you study? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but, um, but I, I've been in therapy for like 20 years on my own. And, uh, one thing that I have, like learned because my inclination is always to be the right righteous one in the room is that I'll just be like, cause I, I have to say something like I can't not say anything. Like I can't just like go with it and not say anything. So the thing that I started saying is like, okay, 
Like, and I just kind of, I'm like, that's, you know, like, and I, and so, so instead of arguing or like, or like staking my claim, you know, it's like, I'm just like, okay, okay. You know, and then just try to move on from there. What's crazy is all the things that I thought would be true about that moment, like that I would like hold on to resentment and that I would be like a boiling cauldron of anger and, you know, eventually I would explode are actually not true because the moment that I'm like, oh, okay, it, I generally forget about whatever it was that was like life imperative 45 seconds before. So, you know, it's, um, I think mm. you're, I think the whole thing about, I mean, I liked her piece, but I think the idea of Christian submission in marriage, and I say this as a woman, is, uh, I know a very dangerous topic for a lot of Christian marriages and women, but from the, pers- from my perspective is, um, it's a constant, constant submission to one another. I mean, I just, that's, yes. yeah. that's my right, RJ, you're the one who just once said it was 100, 100, not 50, 50. And I, that's right. I think that, uh, All right, in. I know other people have said that before too. And it, you know, you're right. This is anytime you use the S word, uh, it's been so used and abused and bludgeoned, especially against women, I think. But I do find that there's, um, if it becomes this, I think we we told the story on the New York Times one about these, this couple that they they decided to have a kid and they just the, the the man wanted to have the child more than the woman, so they agreed up front that he would be responsible for eighty five percent of like the child related <laughs> stuff, and she would be responsible for fifteen or some like very funny, almost funny, frankly, reading it and knowing having kids uh, amount like percentage wise. And you're like, wow, that is a bold thing to do to think of you're going to be able to not only define the percentages, but in that stark of a, of a way. And I know that marriage really involves giving up on a lot of that stuff. And I'm so tempted to feel like I'm doing everything. I'm doing more. The, the truth is they come to this gracious moment where the, the accounting and the scorekeeping fails. And of course, the love that she's able to see that her husband, though he hasn't kept up his side of the bargain, is keeping it up in ways that maybe she's not aware of. And a lot of times when you have this sort of breakdown of domestic stuff, there are uh, both sides is thinking, is using a slightly different type of score sheet, I think. So, yeah. Um, but shall we say, I, th- I thought, you know, in, when Heather writes about it, I people would say, well, that sounds like such a negative and non-romantic view of marriage. And I don't think actually, I, I read it and I was like, you know, I actually really like my wife too. Like she's funny mm-hmm. to me and we, we have, we have a fun together. Humor is and yet, so important. And yet, yeah. and, and they say that humor, you know, she cites some research in there about humor being one of the most important elements. And, the, um, but it, it, it definitely is the, 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 the good parts are almost not even worth talking about because that's so different according to each couple, but the, where people get stuck is so common and so similar. And so much of it has to do with this because uh, I'm at the stage of life like you guys are where I'm seeing a lot of marriages fall apart and yeah. um, mm-hmm. a lot of people and a lot of people who want really wanted to keep their marriage together yeah. or people who have just can't seem to make it work or, and not necessarily people where one there's been some huge betrayal but just people that wake up and like I don't I don't like you I, it's easy to judge why people fall while well, well, people relationships fall apart I'm just saying I'm seeing a lot of it and I know there's no like one size fits all hey just just be totally vulnerable with each other it's a lot 
are easier said than done. But when it comes to sort of descriptions of the beauty of grace in a marriage, I thought her closing one um, that is very close to the Walker Percy. You know, we love those who see the worst of us and don't turn their face away. And so there's a there's a low anthropology in the midst of all the beauty of that another person brings to the table. I like what she said. However, she's like, my husband has a perfect golf swing. He also wears golf shirts, which are empirically the least attractive article of clothing in human history. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she was, it was a really beautiful, um, yeah, a lot of humor, a lot of honesty. You great. can tell she loves her husband. She wasn't, oh, trying, she wasn't putting that on. And that's kind of nice to hear because sometimes it feels like men are such, I don't know how women love men. I, I never get it. I, I don't, Me not either. being. It's a weird thing. I'm like, I'm like, hey, what happen? is it that, why do women actually. Evidence for the existence of God. <laughs> I mean, I do think you, David, what you said, we've talked to this a lot, but like that there are all these things that people do that we like married in, in marriage relationships that you do that the other person doesn't see. And so when the accounting comes in and I think in some ways, you know, our household is not from any intent that we brought into it, but just because of the way that children have been tends to be more traditional in terms of duties. It just has been. And what's always funny to me is like how all the things that Josh does are like hidden. You know what I mean? I'll be like, you haven't done anything this week. He's like, both cars are cleaned out. I took out the recycling. I made sure the grass was, I mean, I'm just like, and I'm sitting there like, oh, I guess you did all. Yes. uh You know, it's just funny. (laughs) It's like, I was, there's all, there was a couple of years ago, there was this spate of articles about emotional work and that I do all the worrying (laughs) and you don't do all the, it was mainly women saying that men don't worry as much. And what it boiled down to me, it was like, well, uh, you need to be more like me and we both need to be freaked out about the same things when when in fact in my relationship I am very worried but about like, very different things. I remember things. reading that and being like you haven't met the men I know. Like I'm just come worried about a, a different bird. stuff. We're full of men that worry. <laughs> come on over here. Yeah. We're anxious. We're afraid. We're we're hanging on to our faith by a thread. So um, the other thing is when you st- when you start taking when you start doing accounting work, there's no time for anything else. You know what I mean? I thought about that 85, 15 percent. It's like no, no, no. It was like actually 30, 20, but 50 percent of the time was just writing, like keeping count, keeping score. But you, but you, you know, know like the that- really clear statistic you get from that though, RJ. Yeah. 0% sex. Yeah, that's totally true. 0%. Yeah. You know I mean? Yes. Which, yes, it's totally true. It's totally true. Sarah, Sarah, Sarah continues uh, her, uh, her, her, uh, uh, you know, uh, your, your, uh, crusade to bring uh, back sex to the American couple. Bring Make sex great again. Stop talking about the dishwasher. We're going to, we're going to close with an article from Vice of all places written by Shayla Love. Uh, unbelievable article here that felt like mocking bait is what people say when they send us stuff that they know we'll write about or talk about called the pursuit of high self-esteem is making us miserable. This is on Vice. They begin by talking about a young woman whose worth and abilities is a she, she talks about is especially vulnerable to outside forces, not just of uh, other people's opinions and thoughts of her, but what she imagines other people might be thinking. Her self-esteem is hung up on that. Uh, you know, go figure. Uh, psychologists have a name for this feeling. It's called contingent self-esteem. Uh, 
if I'm only worthwhile if my boss, my friends, my partner, my teacher thinks highly of me. And they basically go through all the ways in which contingent self-esteem can backfire. Uh, she writes, for decades, psychologists considered high self-esteem instrumental to a successful and positive life, but more recent research has found it's not all it's cracked up to be, especially when it comes from what others think about you. Having someone else perceive you as hardworking or smart doesn't necessarily contribute to a long-term sense of worth, nor does it help people be independent or have meaningful relationships. Uh, social psychologist Jennifer Crocker, who's been researching self-esteem for 40 years, writes, we think of boosts to self-esteem as analogous to sugar. They're tasty but not nutritious. A fixation on getting those brief hits of pleasure, especially if they're contingent on other people saying nice things about you, could instead make us miserable, adding to anxiety and depression. She says, it's like a bottomless pit because there's always another person who could be judging you and they could have a higher standard or a different standard. Contingent self-esteem creates a yo-yoing sense of happiness and self-worth. And then they talk to Gunner, a 24-year-old accountant who doesn't always have enough to do to fill the whole day. So he spends the hours with meaningless tasks to try and seem busy for fear that others will judge him if they know he's not busy. This kid sounds like Martin Luther. He says, this takes a serious toll on my mental health. I find myself looking over my shoulder to see if the judging eyes are on me, questioning my every move. Keeping up with contingent self-esteem Shayla writes, requires constant impression management. People who rely on contingencies for self-worth end up in a vicious cycle of chasing approval, finding it, and going on the hunt again. That's exhausting and can also make it harder to achieve your goals in the first place. One expert out of UNC says, I was a worthy and valuable person yesterday because I was able to do good work, but what about today? Can I make it happen again? That's part of the anxiety. If you've been successful, there's pressure to keep that success up. Ironically, impression management and contingent self-esteem can end up making a person a bit self-centered and hurt our relationships. When you are constantly worrying about how you're being seen by others, you can stop paying attention to what other people really need. I think the message is not, the, the same expert uh, Amy Canavello said, the message is not don't care about what other people think of you. Crocker suggests instead asking yourself something like, what is the contribution I'm trying to make in this situation? And then they talk to Maria Mora, a 29-year-old copywriter in New York City. She's attempting to do this in her life, measuring her worth by how she treats others. Being kind to people, being empathetic, understanding, a good listener, and being present, I want to base my self-worth on those qualities. Whoa. That's a long list. She will get no work done whatsoever. Like, pick one, girl. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Damn. What all these strategies get at is that asking yourself, am I a worthwhile human being, isn't very useful. Worth is subjective, and demanding such an existential question uh, on ourselves all the time comes with great risk. Now, is that a, is that a sort of a, a lob over the plate or what? I mean, the, the contingent self-esteem is what, um, I'm just saying, that is what we mean by saying uh, you are justified according to works of the law. If I can be enough, if I can get this person to think I'm enough, if I can, uh, you know, please enough people, then uh, my whole self-worth, my identity will be based on these, my ability to do X, Y, or Z. Non-contingent self-esteem, which is really what we're talking about when we talk about justification by faith as Dorothy Martin once put it, she said that grace is a non-contingent, compassionate alliance with the other. Um, hmm. That is what it, grace actually means. And I thought to myself, isn't that a beautiful example of what it means to have a God who has definitively said in the cross, in his son, uh, I love you, 
and this is this is how much. Um, anyway, contingent self-esteem, understanding it, writing about it for at least for me, twelve years at this point still hasn't uh, you know chased the demon away, as it were. Uh, what about you guys? I think a lot about kids when I think about this, just because I think about the kind of like teachers that our children have had, and that we've had the teachers that it's like contingent, and we've had the teachers that it's non-contingent, and how different your kids respond to them, um, that, you know, my son just finished second grade and he had this just remarkable teacher. Um, and she had a blended classroom. She's the kids with an IEP, which is like uh, sort of new language for special education stuff and then kids without. And the way that those kids felt valued and like loved, uh, and it had nothing to do with really what they brought to the table. It was just like from the outset they were valued and loved was incredible. I mean, I when I watch him interact with her, it's like a little flower like seeing sunshine, you know, and so different from other teachers we've had that it just hasn't. It's always, you know, it's been contingent. He's gotten, you know, he's there's been principal's office visits and things that are just like it just... Um, which, you know, is is in this modern age of parenting, there's a really easy way sometimes for us to do this thing where we're like, well, it's the teacher's fault. And I don't want to do that necessarily, but it is interesting the way that children are willing to respond to, like, non-contingent love. I mean, it's just completely different. Um, so that comes to mind. Also, I'm just, you know, someone who's, like, launching a new ministry and <laughs> thinking a lot about whether or not college kids who like I'm definitely not cool enough to hang out with um what they're gonna true. think of me I'm not I'm not I'm like hi <laughs> it's not true at all I'm a 36 so year old true. mother of two would you like to come to my ministry <laughs> I um, think you're cool how's that for some so non-contingent <laughs> I'm gonna tell a lot of mom jokes uh yeah so I um there is this real impulse right now because I the kid these students uh won't be back until this fall and so sort of getting ready for them and like you know website social media all this stuff and the whole time there's part of my brain that's like, you know, are they going to like this? Are they going to like me? Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's actually not the point. The point is like, how do I tell them that God loves them? Like, that's the point. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it's very easy to go down that first path. And the wonderful thing is like, as soon as like, usually my husband points out that that's the path I'm on. It, then I'm like, oh, like he, he, this week we were talking about this ministry and I was like, you know, I've just figure out this, figure out that, figure out this. And he was like, you just need to write down like the three things that you care about, like that, like that you're hoping this ministry does like for these kids. Like that's, that's the thing. And so. And you, you it sounds like you don't want it to be a place of contingency. Right. Everything else is a place of contingency. Yes. I, I mean, basic, contingency, conditionality, there, there's like a very close relationship between these two things. But I think contingent almost works better because conditionality has been so overdone. Right. But um, we'll see, you guys. But I definitely like as I was reading this, that was like the hard thing when you read some of these things. You're like, Ooh, you know what I mean? Like I'm hustling ugh. for my worth when I should just be like you know, getting ready to tell people how much God loves them and be a place of rest on that campus. When I read this article, I, and I've thought this for a while, how I know what people are trying to get at when they talk about self-esteem, and I feel like they're trying to get at a good thing, but they're going about it the wrong way. And I'm not even sure that self-esteem is 
a, like a Christian term. Right. You know what I mean? I, th I think what studies have shown is like the, you, I mean, you, you know the people in our society who have the highest self-esteem, you know what we call those people? Sociopaths. Yeah, sociopaths. Yeah, sociopaths. Yeah. That's what, that's like what literally. Was, the people with the highest self-esteem are all are on, sociopaths. On death row. And, and that, you know, G um, what'd you say? What? No, it's, it's death true. Row. The people with the highest, yeah, like that's what uh, I think uh, Fitzsimmons Allison once said that. The people with the highest self-esteem he'd ever met were all people he visited in prison. That's amazing. Um, but Jesus is not about self-esteem at all. Yeah. Like I love, uh, the, to me, the, the classic example is the woman who comes to him and he calls her a dog. And then she, she's not like, Gee, call me a dog. She's like, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs under the children's table, you know? And he's like, for such an answer as this. And it's not blessed are the ones with large self-esteem. It's blessed are the poor in spirit. Right. And, to and that's me, not Christian, the same thing as low self-esteem either, I don't think. No, it's not. But it, no, it's not. Um, it's uh, but transparency. But to me, Christianity yeah. isn't about self-esteem. It's about humility and belovedness, right? Belovedness. And that's what we were talking about in the Haverleski article too, is like, you know, when husband and wife are able to look at each other and be like, you're the worst. And God, I love you so much. You know, when, when you see someone for who they are and you see yourself for who you are and you come to your spouse and you say, what did she, what did the husband say? Like, I had, the, I had this thought this morning that I woke up that I'm a, I'm a total fake and I I've, could never accomplish anything and I never will. And they just laughed about it. And, and she loved him in spite of it. That's Christianity. It's truth-telling, humility, and unconditional belovedness in the midst of it. And that creates something like self-esteem, but it's not self-esteem. It's freedom. It's, it's, um, right? it's, it's, it's freedom. It's belovedness. It's, it's joy. It's hope. It's all these other things. Like, self like I don't even want to think about self-esteem. Like, what does that even mean? Now, that doesn't mean that I don't love the odd email or note from a parishioner being like, he you know, loves them. that's this I love I have Send a drawer more. I literally have a drawer full of them Aaron literally. Zimmerman is awful RJ exactly. Heyman is amazing yeah, exactly he's got four I, stars I love the them and I go back yeah. and read them and I'm like look I did something good you know it's like a it's like a little fix you know it's, it's she's right it's like sugar mm -hmm. it's not nutritious but at the end of the day it's not going to get me anywhere all that's going to matter is like Jesus loves me at my worst you know, and maybe Jamie does too. Maybe my wife does too. Loves me at my worst. And some of my friends love me at my worst. Like that will get me through the day. The little self-esteem hit shots. Yeah, they feel good for like a few minutes and then they, they fade, mm. you know, and, and I'm not always going to get those. So anyway, that's my rant. I keep thinking about um, when I was at, you know, I was a kid in the 90s when the self-esteem movement was like really full force. And the greatest love of yes. all. I'm, I, I, there, I'm in a bag on Whitney a little bit. Sorry. There Say was a Whitney. program in the public school system called I'm Special. And <laughs> there was a mom who wore in my memory and I'm hoping I'm not wrong. A, a, like a, she was in a leotard and black tights and then wore like a physical sunshine. Like, so she almost looked like the Jimmy Dean guy, but like she was a cute young mom and she would come into the classrooms and lecture us about how special we were. And it was a, all an initiative to raise self-esteem. And even as like a nine-year-old, I remember being like, this is bullshit. Like, I just remember even <laughs> exactly. as a nine-year-old, I was like, I was like, I mean, I know I'm special. Like, you know, it's, it's that thing, like when you go into a room and you ask the kids, like, who's the best dancer in the room? Like they all raise their hands. Um, and I mean, I don't want to like, downplay. It's interesting. This idea of 
self-esteem. I don't want to downplay low self-esteem, but I do wonder, I mean, I'm kind of with you, RJ. I'm like, what, what even is it, right? Like, it's a thing that was very popular to talk about for a long time. We were all worried about children's self-esteem. There's tons of books about it. And it's like, on some level, like, isn't it just a need to be, like, loved without contingency i mean isn't that isn't that kind of all that that is at its best um i don't know i yeah I, and you the, know, the high self-esteem movement created a hamster wheel where you had to continue to get that sort of little hit almost yes. and and, and the, what they the all the social psychologists say is or when you get out into the real world and you're not getting it then people all fall apart and that's the fragility yes. at least and not even of the millennials it's almost like the pre millennial generation whatever when you that find was. out you're actually not special well and then there's, <laughs> like, there's like such a thing i mean i'm not going to hate on instagram every week but there is such a thing where it's like women <laughs> reclaim their self esteem they're like i'm going to have high self esteem now you know what i mean and then you like put up all these quotes and like here you are in a flashy dress or whatever and then it's it's like that doesn't work you I know, know what i mean like, like you no can't one believes it yourself. you're like you're you're and trying also, to convince yourself also of something like Maybe. In fact, you see that you're like, you're like, what's going on with her? Something's going on with well, that I'm person. Just like, maybe Things must be ugly behind the like, scenes. Maybe she's depressed. You know what I mean? Yeah, like exactly. I see that. I'm like, is depressed. she not dealing with depression? Her depression? Well, like this is not a way to like. You can't essential oil your way out of this situation. You know what I mean? So like, I don't yeah. know. I well, just. And, and when it gets when it gets to the gospel, I mean, I wonder if because we say we've moved beyond self esteem. Now we talk about. Self-image or just sort of self-regard, self-regard, and I, I think they're pretty much all synonymous. But I, I do think when it comes to the gospel, I don't think God is really that. It, it's, it's so um, tertiary. It, it's, it seems like God is more in, in, interested in like uh, saving souls. Or, I mean, it's uh, like we've run, run out of problems a little bit. Yeah, you know and, I mean? and the, the, raising the dead rather than like making people feel a little bit better about. Yeah. Um, their contingencies. Well, it's, Tol it's Tolstoy from two weeks ago, right? Mm. That like he had a lot of self-esteem yeah, yeah, yeah. because everything was great yeah. and suddenly it wasn't. But guess how he recaptured right. his sense of like meaning was right. to lose his self-esteem. Right. He went like, out, I, he I, bought I, a Jimmy Dean sunshine outfit. <laughs> <laughs> and he started Dean. reading some Dostoevsky. Well, guys, I think we've uh, probably traveled as long as we, we covered can. it on this road. But, uh, yes, marriage, sin, and self-esteem. I'm grateful to all of you. I, I invite people to all go check out Sarah's uh, new website for the Episcopal Church at Rice. Aww. It's pretty cool. And, We're going to crash that uh, server. We'll see you in a few weeks. There'll be uh, We'll have a couple of like sort of mini episodes that go up. And then Ethan is preparing uh, the Family Issue episode. The Family Issue, by the way, just went to the printers, and it, it looks so good. So make sure you're signed up for that uh, as a side of either a monthly giver or a sort of subscriber to the magazine because um, this thing is just going to be... Sarah, you wrote something great in there. I'm, I'm, I'm in there, RJ. You, you spared everyone once again. RJ uh, licked the You're covers. Welcome. He licked all You're the welcome. covers. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I can't wait for people to read it. So yeah, happy summer, guys. We'll talk to you in a few, uh, soon. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. <laughs>